0: Another opportunity to gather, Lord, with your people to study your word. We, Lord, we look forward to the lessons you have for us. So, Lord, bless this time together. Bless our time in your word, Lord. And may we leave tonight, Lord, with a, with a renewed strength, a renewed power to go out and to be bold for Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, don't, don't sit down just yet. We've got an important phone call coming in here. Why don't, uh, why don't you turn and, and say hello to the person next to you. Greet them in the name of Jesus. Tell them you're glad you're here. I just want everybody to know tonight that I would never, I would never stoop to actually telling you who to vote for in the upcoming election. I would never do that. I just, uh, that's just, I'm above that kind of thing. I just want you to know that. But I did want to mention to you tonight that that you know this Heinz ketchup. I've really stopped using Heinz ketchup. I. <laughs> I really, I really don't like the Heinz ketchup. I've, I've shifted over to this W brand right here. The, 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 you know, W America's ketchup. There. So, anyway, I just just wanted to mention that. That's just about ketchup, though. That's not. Right. Hey, we we have. Uh, uh, we've been hosting this week a conference for Calvary Chapel pastors who are either in startup Calvary Chapels or are seeking affiliation and wanting to become a part of Calvary Chapel. We've had about, oh, I guess 10 or so guys in from various places as far away as Louisiana, uh, South Carolina. I think we've got one lingering pastor here tonight. This is Pastor Nick from Calvary Chapel. Raise your hand, Pastor Nick. There you go. From Calvary Chapel, Blythewood, 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 South Carolina, which is right close to uh, Columbia. Yeah, great. So it's great to have you Nick. Well, have a seat. Let's get out our Bibles. Let's turn to the Book of Genesis. The city of Sodom had a myriad of evil in her midst. Ezekiel chapter 16 provides a complete list of all of Sodom's sins. But among them was really a total capitulation to homosexuality. Every day was gay pride day in Sodom. Here was a city that didn't just tolerate, but legitimized sexual perversion. In fact, today we get the term sodomy from the town of Sodom. And because of this perversion, the city of Sodom was ripe for God's judgment. In Genesis chapter 18, God and two angels had visited Abraham and had promised him that Sodom would be spared if just 10 righteous citizens were found in her borders. Sadly, that search proved futile. Sodom was wicked beyond repair, and we read about her punishment tonight in chapter 19. Verse 1 Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. You remember when Lot left Abraham, Uncle Abe gave him the option to settle in any direction that he pleased. But in chapter 13, verse 12, we're told that he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. In other words, Lot moved in the direction of the glitz and glamour of this big city. Apparently, the pleasure and the convenience and the entertainment and the commerce and the variety and all of the activities of the world had an attraction on Lot and his wife and his family. Lot starts out pitching his tent as far as Sodom. But the next time we see him, in chapter 14, verse 12, we're told that Lot dwelt in Sodom. He goes from pitching his tent as far as Sodom to dwelling in Sodom. The lure of the city had sucked him in, and now here we see him again, sitting in the gate of Sodom. He is now right in the thick of things. This doesn't just necessarily refer to the site where he's sitting. But to Lot's status, he's sitting in the gate. In other words, he's risen to prominence. Lot is now a city official in the town of Sodom. Note the progression. He starts out looking towards Sodom. He ends up living in Sodom. And he becomes a leader of Sodom. He sees and then he settles and then he supports what's going on. And this is how the world will suck you in unless you're careful. Our eyes will lead us astray, the lust of the eyes. We set our sights on the pleasures and the prestige of this world. And then we settle into a lifestyle bent on obtaining what we see. Finally, we turn our attention to supporting and justifying that lifestyle, even when we know it's not turning out to be what it's cracked up to be. Lot was drawn in slowly but surely. Guys, the path to Sodom is a gradual slope. It has no sudden turns it involves a little bit of compromise piled on top of one another beware second peter chapter 2 verse 8 gives us some insight into lot it says that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds very little in genesis will indicate to us that lot was a righteous man but peter says that he was And yet, even a righteous man, when put in wicked surroundings, over time it takes its toll. It beats you down. The evils of Sodom tormented Lot, Peter says, and eventually toppled his family. Well, again, verse 1 tells us, When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. And the reason Lot insisted strongly was his knowledge of the city. You see, each night in Sodom, homosexual predators roamed the streets, raping and robbing defenseless strangers. Lot couldn't bear the thought of, Two messengers from God being the brunt of such treatment. And so he insisted strongly. And they turned into him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Verse 4. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. In other words, that we may rape them. A gang of homosexual rapists bang on Lot's door and asked for him to send out these two visitors. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. These men are perverts who want to rape and brutalize innocent visitors. But notice what Lot calls them. It's scary. He says in verse 7, Please, my brethren. My brethren? Hey, make this world your family, and you'll end up with some unsavory brothers and sisters, trust me. This shows the totality of Lot's compromise. Imagine the morals and the truth that Lot had to ignore. Think of the convictions he had to overlook to reach the point where he would call these perverts his brothers. And then he suggests, See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. What in the world is this man thinking? He offers his two virgin daughters to be brutalized by a gang of violent, barbaric, homosexual beasts. There are commentaries that try to chalk up Lot's offer here to the oriental custom of treating visitors with respect. Or they point to the low view of women that existed in the world until the coming of Christianity. Even with those factors considered, I still have a hard time relating to Lot's thinking. Lot's associations, his accommodations, his compromises with the evils of Sodom had stripped him of any courage he might have once had. It had confused his loyalties. And now there is no excuse He even offers his two virgin daughters to these people. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They turn on Lot. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the two angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Notice, though, the blindness itself didn't stop their lust and their aggression. You'd think if you got struck with sudden blindness, you'd stop whatever you were doing and listen to God. Instead, they keep groping in the dark. Their lust, their aggression continues. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot's given the opportunity to save his family, to escape with his family. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his son-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Boy, what a tragic reaction. But apparently by this time, Lot had lost all credibility. He had gotten so comfortable, he had gotten so accommodating to the city of Sodom. Nobody would believe that he was willing to take a stand. He had spent so much time fitting in that no one could imagine him standing up. Let me ask you a question. You high school students at school tomorrow. You guys in the workplace. Let me ask you. Here's an important question for us. If we suddenly took a stand for God, took a stand for truth, for righteousness. Would it be so unusual that our friends would think we were joking? That's what happened to Lot right here. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered. Imagine that. Lot lingered. Sodom is about to be incinerated and rather run for his life. Lot lingers. It just proves the powerful grip that the world can have on us, even in the face of God's judgment. And here is God's grace in action. Notice, the men took hold. Lot is lingering and the men took hold of Lot's hand his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. God literally pulled him out by the hand. I wonder if every time we're tempted that God doesn't grab us by the Spirit and try to pull us away from that temptation. To sin, I think we've got to shake God off. And continue to linger. He wants to pull us out. He wants to have mercy on us. Verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. You see, Lot's time in Sodom had cultivated in his heart a fear, not a faith. And now he's invited to meet with God in the mountains... But instead, Lot prefers the clamor of another city. Just a smaller city this time. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Or literally, it means small. Judgment can't come, though. Notice, judgment can't come. Until God's people are safe. That's important. Because at the end of the age, there will be great tribulation upon this earth. God is going to judge this earth. But once again, judgment won't be able to come until God's people are safe. Before judgment comes down, the church goes up. When the fires of judgment ravage the earth, the people of God will be safe and secure in heaven. That's how God works. Verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. In other words, Lot had left Sodom at dawn, but since he lingered, the sky was now high in the sky. And then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Sodom and its neighboring city, Gomorrah. They were both located in the Valley of Sittim, which is today the southern shore of the Dead Sea. It's interesting, Genesis chapter 14 verse 10 tells us the Valley of Sittim was full of asphalt pits. This region is also still known today for its salt and its sulfur content. And it could be how God worked the miracle we don't know, but it could be that God sent a lightning bolt that perhaps hit a pocket of gas in one of these asphalt pits and then exploded. Gangle and Brommer, they actually write a description of what might have happened. Large quantities of sulfur and salt were carried red hot into the heavens and in turn literally rained fire and brimstone on the cities. How God did it, we really don't know. But the whole valley was burned to a crisp. You know, Billy Graham once commented, if God does not judge America he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I think that's true. We're guilty of just as much, if not more, than the city of Sodom. If God judged Sodom, then certainly we're next in line. So God overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. I guess you could say she was assaulted. <laughs> Lot's wife became a podium of sodium, <laughs> a pillar of salt. Hey, Mrs. Lot left Sodom, but Sodom never left Mrs. Lot. Her body left, but not her heart. She loved the pleasures and the treasures of this world more than the new life that God had promised her. Do you know anybody like that? That Loves the pleasures of this world more than the new life God gives us. Apparently, she was bitter toward God for having to leave Sodom. And so God immortalized her bitterness by turning her into a tower of salt. And Jesus uses this story as a warning to us, to believers living in the last days. In Luke chapter 17, verse 30, he tells us, Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop, and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And here's why. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Don't let the world get its claws into you. Beware, don't develop an attraction to the things of this world. If you do, you'll miss out on God's best. After you come to Christ, after you put your hand to the plow, never look back. Remember Lot's wife. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Abraham went out to spend some time with the Lord. He did a lot of that. It's interesting, recorded from chapters 12 through chapters 22 are over a hundred conversations between God and Abraham. Abraham was a man who lived in constant conversation with God. That's the kind of man I want to be. Reminds me of the man who entered a church in California, and he saw a payphone on the wall, and he saw a little sign over the top of it that read, Calls, $10,000. And when he asked the pastor, why this expensive phone? The pastor said, well, that's the hotline to heaven. Pick up that phone, and you can talk directly to God. That's why it's so expensive. Well, as the man traveled across the country, he, he entered a lot of churches along the way, and he saw similar payphones and similar signs, all the... Signs read, calls, $10,000, until he got to good old Atlanta, Georgia. And in Atlanta, he walked into a church and he saw a payphone, and the sign above it said, Hotline to God, 25 cents. And he thought, wow, just 25 cents? What's the difference here? He found the pastor and he asked him, why in the world are calls to God so much cheaper in Atlanta? And that's when the pastor answered him and said, because... Calls from Atlanta to heaven are always local calls. (laughs) Man, Atlanta is God's country, man, I'm telling you. (laughs) Abraham loved to spend time with God. And hey, from Abraham's tent, every call to heaven was a local call. I hope you've got a local call line from your knees to heaven. But on this morning, as he was spending time with God, he notices some smoke on the horizon. Verse 28. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains. And his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. He must have thought that God would judge Zor just as he had judged Sodom. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Apparently fear dominated their lives. Fear rather than faith. They were called to the mountains. They ended up in a cave. That's what fear will do to you. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come in to as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was pretty drunk. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I will lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Lot carries with him the tragic distinction of becoming a father and a grandfather at the very same time. Incest riddled his family. You know, it's ironic. Wine ends up causing Lot to do to his daughters what the homosexuals outside his house on that infamous night in Sodom wanted to do to his daughters. Wine caused Lot to do it to him himself he lays with his virgin daughters and they end up getting pregnant you know it's interesting according to peter lot was a righteous man and lot may have managed to remain a righteous man while living in sodom but understand his family didn't remain righteous sodom wore his family wore down his family sodom corrupted his family his wife loved sodom's possessions And looked back with a longing gaze. His daughters learned Sodom's perversions and ended up getting their father drunk so he would sire their sons. It proves that compromise with sin does bring dire consequences. If not on you immediately, on your family ultimately. Verse 37, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And down through the centuries, both the Moabites and the Ammonites have ended up causing the Israelites a heap of problems. They eventually become idolaters, and they end up God's enemies. Chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar, This was Philistine country. Verse 2. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. Does that sound familiar? It should. This is what he said 25 years earlier to the Pharaoh back in chapter 12. And do you remember Abraham's rationale for his lie? Sarah was so gorgeous He was worried that a pagan king would kill him in order to take her into his harem. Now, we were amazed that Abraham had this concern back in chapter 12 when Sarah was 65 years old. Now she's 90 years old and apparently still pretty enough to be desired by an oriental king. Hey, if only Sarah had left us her secret. But perhaps she has. For we read over in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Sarah had the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And she was submissive to her husband as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And ladies, let me just tell you, Spiritual beauty is timeless beauty, and it is desired and envied by every man. It never wrinkles, by the way. Perhaps Sarah's secret was the inner beauty that radiated from her. It's amazing, though, that Abraham repeats the exact same mistake he made over two decades earlier. Now, in between, a lot had happened in Abraham's life, he had grown in his faith. His knowledge of God had increased. But apparently, Abraham had never taken the time to restructure his thinking toward his wife and toward his fears. So when thrown into the same situation, he reacts in the exact same way. And this is what happens to us. This is what happens to believers in Jesus. We enter into a relationship with God. We start to grow spiritually. But then a situation pops up that pressures us for a response. And since we've never taken the time to retrain our minds in that area, we end up reverting back to the way we've always coped. We fall back into the very same trap because we've never transformed our thinking to see our circumstances from God's perspective, to tailor our responses around His will. We need to follow Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23. You want to memorize this verse. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I'm hoping you're renewing your mind tonight and beginning to think and perceive things God's way. Well, in Abimelech, king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a, night, in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man <laughs> because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And just as God did earlier for Abraham, here again, he comes to the rescue. A dream by night. But Abimelech, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. God, I didn't know it. I'm innocent, God. I didn't know what I, what they lied to me, God. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God honored this man's integrity and kept Abimelech from adultery. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Not much of a choice there, is there? She's not that pretty, let me tell you. (laughs) Remember, it was Abraham who lied to Abimelech. If God hadn't intervened, Abraham would have let them all fall into sin. Yet Abraham here gets introduced as a prophet. That's sort of funny to me. And God promises Abimelech that, oh, by the way, Abraham will pray for you if you do the right thing. I'm sure Abimelech scratching his head and said, I'm the one that needs to be praying for that guy. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Buddy, what were you thinking? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife, but indeed she is truly my sister. She is my, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. In other words, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. He, he's saying, well, I was half-right. <laughs> I mean, he told a half-truth. But I'll tell you, some of the best lies come from half-truths. It's been said, a half-truth said with the intent to deceive still makes for a whole lie. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. And every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Notice this whole scheme was premeditated. Rather than truthfulness, lying in this area was just sort of their mode of operation. Twice they've tried it now, and they've gotten in trouble both times. You'd think they'd stop. Abraham's lies, though, like many lies today, were generated by fear. God can't protect me, so I'll manipulate the truth. I'll protect myself. God's fear can motivate a lying tongue. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And I'm sure he was being a little bit sarcastic when he called Abraham there her brother. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. She had lied to Abimelech, and yet Abimelech turns around and shows her kindness. It's what the New Testament calls heaping coals of fire upon her head, you know, exchanging a, you know, a kindness, it's exchanging a bad act for a kindness. Verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Chapter 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Guys, note that. God always does for us just as he has spoken. He keeps his promises. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him, and Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And the name Isaac means, he will laugh. Remember, both Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise, didn't they? They laughed that a 90-year-old Sarah would be able to bear a son. Apparently, though, God always gets the last laugh. Never forget that. And this is a funny sight. Picture in your mind, you'll laugh too. Two silver-haired seniors... Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. They come out of the maternity ward holding a little baby in their arms. That's a pretty funny picture. It was nothing short of a miracle, though. And I'm sure when it happened, they laughed for joy that the blessing of God had finally occurred. And remember, 25 years had elapsed between chapter 21 and chapter 12, between the giving of this promise and its reception, and I want you to understand that there, was all, there will always be a delay between the giving and the receiving of God's promise. In fact, we're living in that delay right now. We're living in the in-between time. We've been promised heaven and a forever victory. But have we achieved it just yet? No, we're still waiting. And therefore, it takes faith and patience, faith and patience to endure and to inherit God's promises. There's always a delay between the giving of a promise and the receiving of that promise. Verse four tells us, "Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It also reminds me of the Boston Rabbi. He had a lot in common with Joe Dimaggio. They both were known as the Yankee Clipper. You just need to think about it. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him. A son in his old age. Who would have funked? Verse 8. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac was probably about three to five years old when he was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham scoffing. Now this word, scoffing, implies more than just friendly kidding or sibling teasing. Galatians 4 verse 29 says that Ishmael... Persecuted Isaac. He tortured the boy. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Remember, Abraham's liaison with Hagar was Sarah's idea. But now, she's got a different idea. Now she sees the brutal treatment that Ishmael is fostering on her son Isaac. And she wants Hagar and Ishmael tossed out on their ear. Verse 11. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Understand, at this point, Ishmael was 17 years old. And Abraham had been a faithful father. I mean, Abraham and his son Ishmael, they had built strong ties. Ishmael was a junior in high school. Abraham had coached him in baseball his whole life. I mean, they'd gone fishing and hunting together. This is hard on Abraham. And he's not sure if he really wants to cooperate with Sarah and boot out his boy. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. God assures Abraham that he'll take care of Ishmael. That Hagar's son will become a great nation in his own right. But the house of Abraham is not big enough for both sons, and Ishmael is the odd man out. For Isaac is the promised son. In Isaac your seed shall be called, God says. And what was true of Abraham's household is true of the Middle East today. Yes, God has multiplied the Arab nations, but the sod, the seed, the salvation, the covenant that God made with Abraham belongs to Isaac and Isaac alone belongs to Israel. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and filled her voice and wept, rejected, abandoned, left for dead the both of them. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Once again, just as he did before, God comes to the aid of Hagar and Ishmael. They were kicked out of Abraham's house, but God didn't abandon them. Understand, God loved Ishmael just as He loves the Arabs today. It's ironic, really, but according to the New Testament, when the Arabs embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they in turn become a child of Abraham in another way, in a spiritual way, one of God's chosen people. Abraham left Ishmael for dead, but Jesus died in Ishmael's place. Verse 20 so God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, which is sort of located right there in the center of the Sinai Peninsula. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Galatians chapter 4 is an intriguing passage that plays off of this story. Paul actually uses the eviction of Ishmael and Hagar as a figurative or a symbolic application. He uses this story to encourage the church to kick the legalists out for persecuting the believers in grace. You have to go back and read it. Galatians chapter 4. I point it out to you because it's a fascinating New Testament use of an Old Testament passage. Verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. You know, Abimelech, he saw Abraham's wealth, his power. He knew that God's favor was on Abraham's life. He also remembered that Abraham had this penchant for telling lies. And so he figured that Abraham could be a future threat. And so he seeks to form this alliance. And Abraham agrees to it. Verse 24. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. And the word Beersheba means well of an oath. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Which brings us to chapter 22. After Isaac is born, Abraham rested in Beersheba for many days. But now his faith gets tested as never before. After the rest comes the test, and that's true in our lives as well. Get ready. Did you hear that Abraham wanted to upgrade his personal computer with Windows XP? Did you hear about this? He wanted to upgrade to Windows XP, but Isaac told him, he said, Dad, you can't run Windows XP on your old slow Pentium 2. You need at least a Pentium 4 processor with a minimum of 512 megabytes of memory in order to multitask effectively with Windows XP. And that's when Abraham, this man of faith, calmly replied, Son, God will provide the ram. (laughs) Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And notice, God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. God doesn't even recognize Ishmael as a child of Abraham, let alone as an heir. This means that among nations, Israel has an exclusive relationship with God. Israel is God's chosen people. And verse 2 here brings us hope as well. For if God doesn't mention Ishmael, it's obvious that he has forgotten Abraham's lapse of faith and his sin with Hagar. To me, this is proof that what God forgives, he forgets. God loved and remembered Ishmael, but not the works of the flesh that produced and accompanied his birth. As for God's plan, Isaac was an only son. Notice also verse 2. The word love appears for the very first time in the Bible. First mention of the word love. And it speaks of a father's love for his son. Abraham loved Isaac. But God tells Abraham to take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Here is the ultimate test of faith. Imagine raising a knife with the intent of slitting the throat Of your own son. Imagine that. And what made the command so confusing was that Isaac was heir to God's promise. God's command here flies in the face of both love and logic. And yet Abraham obeyed. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. And notice that phrase, we will come back to you. Obviously, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead that somehow God would work this out, that we, both me and the boy, will come back to you. This is what Hebrews 11 verse 19 tells us. There, Abraham concludes that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And notice, this was not only a test for Abraham, but this was also a picture for us. He said, in a figurative sense. As Father Abraham traveled 50 miles northeast to the mountain called Moriah to offer his only son Isaac, God the Father will make a trip to that same mountain 2,000 years later to offer his only son, Jesus. Mount Moriah was one of the hills on which the city of Jerusalem sat. It's interesting, in Abraham's day, there was a settlement about halfway up the mountain of Moriah This means that Abraham probably climbed above that settlement to offer Isaac at the top of the hill, at the top of Moriah, at the very place that later would be called Golgotha or Mount Calvary. Abraham offered his son on the exact spot that 2,000 years later God would offer his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You know, if you want to see the cross from the disciples' perspective, read the Gospels. If you want to understand the cross from Jesus' perspective, read that prophetic passage in Psalm 22. But if you want to see the cross from the Father's perspective, you got it right here Genesis chapter 22. Though through Abraham, we can see the Father's heart on display. As he raises the knife and sacrifices his own son. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. Abraham took the wood, the wood of the sacrifice. And he laid it on Isaac. You remember Jesus also carried a piece of wood. Up that same hill, Moriah. He carried a Roman cross. The father picked up a piece of wood and put it on Jesus and had him carry it to the place of sacrifice. Notice also in verse 3, two men travel with Abraham to offer Isaac. There were two thieves on the cross, remember, who also traveled with Jesus on his gruesome journey. And when do you think that Isaac died in the mind of Abraham? When do you think he died in Abraham's mind? When they left, obviously, he was willing to do it. When they left to make the trip, in Abraham's mind, his son was dead. And what's intriguing about that is that according to verse 4, it took three days to reach Moriah. And thus, from Abraham's perspective, his son rose from the dead on the third day. Which is exactly what happened to God's son, Jesus Christ. Remember, too, both Isaac and Jesus had miraculous births. Isaac is a fascinating type of Jesus, and Abraham a type of God the Father. Verse 7 tells us, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. In other words, there was an exact spot where God wanted this drama to unfold. And I believe that spot would later support Calvary's cross. And Abraham built an altar there. Abraham was good at building altars, wasn't he? He was always building altars. Everywhere he went, Abraham was a worshiper. And Abraham placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar Upon the wood. When he placed the wood in order, I wonder if he placed it in the shape of a cross. Could be. Now understand, at this point, Isaac is a grown man. Jewish commentators like to suggest that Isaac was 30-something at the time of this episode. Abraham remembers, he he was over 100. He's an old geezer. And to bind a 30-year-old man on the altar, he needed some cooperation. Hey, we all talk about the faith of Abraham. But what about the faith of Isaac? That's what's impressive here. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Try to imagine what's happening in this old man's heart. His 100-year-old heart is pounding. His mind is screaming no. His hand is trembling. He can barely hold the knife. Tears are flowing down his cheeks. His emotions are caught between the desire to obey and a love for his son. What gives this man Abraham the strength to stretch out his hand and to lift his knife and to do the impossible? It was faith. Faith lifted him above the obstacles. Faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Faith that somehow God would work this thing out. And guys, it is faith that gives us the strength to pass the test that God has us in tonight. It is faith that gives us the strength to overcome the obstacles in our lives. Well, just as Abraham is about to plunge the knife right into the throat of his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Through faith he had passed with flying colors. He had passed his test. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, in Hebrew, Jehovah-Jireh, God my provider. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Isaac was not the sinless sacrifice that God would ultimately require. Thus he stopped the hand of Abraham. But 2,000 years later, God will not stop his own hand. Jesus was ultimately the ram that God would provide for the sin of mankind. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 makes a big deal out of the fact that the word seed is singular and not plural. In your seed, not seeds, all the nations shall be blessed. And Paul in Galatians says that that is a reference to one man. Jesus Christ. Salvation came through a special descendant of Abraham, our Lord Jesus. Verse 19. So Abraham turned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huzz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, and boy do I like those two names. Huzz and Buzz, what a great name for boys. Kathy, why don't we rename a couple of them? Huzz and Buzz. Nick, you want to go for, you wanna be Huzz or Buzz, Nick? Both. You want to be both. Okay. You and Mac, Huzz and Buzz. Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chised, Hazo, Pildash. Jilaf, and Bethuel, and Bethuel begat Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ruma also bore Teba, Gaham Tahash, and Machah. And there we have chapter 22. We'll pick up in chapter 23 next week. How many of you would be interested in going to Israel with me? If you'd be interested in going to Israel, raise your hand and lift it up. Boy, you see that, Pastor James? What did, what did, uh, what did Greg say to you when you called about the Israel trip this past week? He said the best time to go would be second week. First or second week in May. Did he see any problems? Did he give us any money? Any costs or anything? I mean, did he give us any costs or price or anything? Okay. You hear that? We're planning it. We're planning a trip to Israel. Hopefully the first or second week in May, whenever we can work it out. So start saving your pennies. It'll probably be what? What do you guess? Two grand? Probably Two grand? And the food over there, you'll, you'll eat most of that in food. You'll eat up two grand in food, let me tell you. The food's outstanding. And we'll go up on the Sea of Galilee, and we'll take the boat right across the Sea of Galilee and eat a fish that was caught right out of the Sea of Galilee. And if you want to try to walk on water, you can go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, follow your pastor. Your pastor's going to stay on the boat, buddy. Unless I just get a total leaning, leading of the Holy Spirit, then maybe I might jump out there. But you know, uh, there is a, one of the fascinating things when last trip to Israel. Right above the, whoa, I gotta fix that. Right above the, uh, right above the Sea of Galilee. You can go up into the mountains there, and there's a archaeological dig and all. And there's a archway that is 4,000 years old. Imagine that. 4,000 years old. And they believe that Abraham probably passed through that arch on the way down to, uh, into the land, on the way down to uh, Mamre and all. It's just amazing when you go over there. I mean, here, you know, you, you see a building, you see a house, and you say, oh, that house is 50 years old. You think, oh, that's old. You see a house that's, you know, 200 years old, you think, how did that survive Sherman? Wow, that's old. But when you go over to Israel, you see these things that are 4,000, 3,000 years old. It's amazing, really amazing. It's an exciting trip. We're going to be going, hopefully, soon. Don't forget to vote. It's coming up real soon. My wife says, it's time to go. You want to go home and see the Red Sox and the Cardinals, don't you? Or was that today? Was that earlier today? Is that tonight? Eight o'clock? Well, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us, Lord. We would never rush through your word, Lord. We love you. You have our whole hearts. You have our minds. You have our souls. You have our whole lives, Lord. We just want to be all that we can be for Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit as we continue our journey through your word. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for good friends. Bless us this week. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.